From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Accounting is supposed to be boring. It's not an insult, by the way. There's a reason the term creative accounting is seen as a bad thing. But if accounting is boring, then setting accounting standards and rules must be really boring. That's what the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, does. It was established 50 years ago to ensure that companies are all using the same methods to come up with the numbers they report to investors and to the public. The SEC technically has the authority to set accounting rules, but it doles that authority out to the FASB. Rich Jones became the leader of the FASB two years ago, but things have been anything but boring for him. Even putting aside the global pandemic, his board has been faced with a lot of tricky questions about how to put a value on cryptocurrency, and not just Bitcoin or Ether, but all of the increasingly exotic coins that companies may have on their books. Then earlier this year, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act and attached some important tax provisions onto it that affect the work the FASB does. Jones sat down with Bloomberg tax reporter Nicola White to talk about how an organization that's used to toiling in obscurity is handling financial issues you might see on the front page of a newspaper. And he started by talking about how difficult it can be to assign a fair market value to a digital asset. As we're looking at it, what our board will be considering is what measurement makes sense and does it make sense for the entire category or should there be certain attributes? Uh, when you think about fair value, fair value is a very easy concept from a standard setter perspective. We say fair value when we're done. But fair value for different assets isn't always the same, meaning the process you go through to determine it. If you have a highly liquid market uh, where there's uh, readily apparent trades and you can see what the value is, it's fairly easy. When you have other items, though, where there's, let's say, less of a transparent market, less liquidity in it, the question comes about is, is fair value the best answer? Because maybe you're not using those exchange values. Maybe you're not maybe you're not using some over-the-counter values. Maybe it's something else. Okay. So as a layperson, when I hear about fair value of a digital asset, I think, okay, Bitcoin, I'll, all I have to do is look up. I can Google it and I get a price for what Bitcoin is trading at right this second. Like that seems very easy. What's an example of a digital asset that's difficult to find a fair value for? Well, let's assume that there's one where I have the majority of the holdings of that digital asset. And let's assume that most of the, there's, there may be some trades on, on a marketplace. Maybe it's a regulated market, market. Maybe it's an unregulated market. Maybe it's one residing here in the US. Maybe it's one residing overseas. Maybe it turns out that most of the volumes aren't actually via that, that, that exchange, but they're over the counter. So should we be looking at those over-the-counter exchange values as an indicator of fair value? And the other thing is, it really comes down to volume and liquidity. At what point are you comfortable if you see, if, if there's a million units out there and one unit changed hands, do you feel that that's an appropriate valuation for the others? I, I think those are all questions that people would want to consider. Okay, so we're not talking about Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, kind of the big name coins that are out there. We could be talking about, there's hundreds of digital cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, Rich Jones coin, or <laughs> there, there's tons we of- a, We should have a FASB coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the moon. Um, but uh, so those kind of more obscure tokens are the ones where 
we get more complicated measurement questions. And Nicola, I think it's fair, right? I don't think we're charged necessarily with, and at least where we are right now, is we're not attempting to set an accounting standard for a specific cryptocurrency. Right. We're trying to determine a model that makes sense for measurement of this, this group of assets that, that are in our scope. Um, and it may be that a measurement attribute would make sense for some subset of it, but not another. And I think it's important because I don't know what will be the highly liquid cryptocurrency 10 years from now. Um, the SEC earlier this year put out a staff accounting bulletin targeted at companies that um, the term is custody customer digital assets. Um, so we're talking about like Coinbase and Robinhood. But the guidance kind of like apparently took a lot of people by surprise and has a lot of accounting ramifications. Banks are nervous about how it how how the accounting affects the capital that they hold. So I wanted to ask you, um, there's so many questions about the staff accounting bulletin. What, if any, role could FASB play in clarifying some of these questions? Or is this just completely in the SEC's hands? So Nicola, you know, obviously that's that's the SEC's guidance. Um, they obviously were looking at some specific fact patterns when they they came up with that, and and they would really be the best people to interpret their guidance. Did, was FASB involved in the writing of the SAB? We were aware that it was going to be issued in the general content, but we we did not provide our views on that document. This um, the chief accountant's office has been very active in the past year, year and a half, um, with a lot of accounting guidance, a lot of uh, statements. Um, tell me about FASB's relationship with acting chief accountant Paul Munter and the um, what we call, you know, everybody refers to it as OCA about the with the OCA staff. Um, like how how much how much contact do you guys have? To what extent do you weigh in on some of the the, the statements that the office puts out and the staff accounting bulletins? Sure. Uh, so just referring to to, to Paul Munter, I've, I've known Paul for years. Paul and I regularly um, talk about a variety of issues. Uh, and and I'm always happy to to hear from Paul, and and I believe Paul is always happy to hear from me. Uh, we we have at the FAS, we we do have a, a a close working relationship with OCA. If you look at our advisory groups, um, OCA yeah. participates on all of our advisory groups. We we share information with them. They share information with us. So I'd say that that working relationship is is very close. As you know, they're responsible for everything in the financials other than the financial statements, but they do occasionally have rulemaking related to the financial statements. Yes, like look at the climate proposal, 50 pages of it were new audited disclosure requirements, which is pretty wild. Yep. So uh, and and if you look at the income tax disclosures that are required today, they have a fairly robust um, set of what's included in the footnotes related to income taxes. If you look at oil and gas accounting, the only place you can find full cost accounting is in the SEC rules. So um, they've done it over the years. Um, it's part of their rulemaking. They have the authority to do that. Um, and to the extent they'd like our views, we're certainly happy to share them. 
Well, um, I'd be remiss if I did not ask you about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which is the, the massive climate and tax package that President Biden just signed. Um, some of our listeners might be surprised to know that FASB kind of plays a role in one part of it. So large companies um, will be taxed at a minimum of 15% of their book profits. How surprised were you that that actually made it into the final law? And what's FASB's next move with standard setting and trying to ensure that people and companies don't lobby the board to change accounting so they get the tax outcome that they want? Like, this is a really, really big deal. Right. So um, I can't say I was surprised because I got to read uh, your publications and others that, that told us it was it was coming in various forms and then stopping and then coming through. So I can't say we were surprised when it came about. Um, as you know, we we develop accounting standards, uh, financial accounting and reporting standards for investors and other allocators of capital. That That's our focus. We get feedback in that regard. And we're focused on providing them transparent economic information. The fact that, that our elected officials choose to use book income as a starting point for their tax, and I'd emphasize that as a starting point, um, that's their choice. They're they're responsible for tax policy. I'd also mention this isn't the first time that, that a, a government entity has chosen to use our accounting standards or our financial statements as a starting point for their regulatory um, actions. If you look at the banking regulators, uh, do I think that some may reach out to us occasionally here and there as we're contemplating a standard saying this will have a tax effect on us or alternatively reach out to their elected officials and say, we don't like the way that book income is affecting tax policy in one way or another? Sure. Um, and they, they, they can do that. And I have confidence that our Folks who decided to use book income as a starting point uh, recognize that that's something that they will always have to fine tune and possibly change. Um, so my favorite accounting standard as an accounting reporter is CECL, the current expected credit loss standard. What's the latest with CECL? The uh, privately held banks and credit unions and some of the smaller public publicly traded companies um, have to adopt it in 2023. So that's right around the corner. Right off the bat, there's not going to be any more delays, right? Uh, nope. Our board had a meeting uh, and uh, our board decided to move ahead with CISO for this the next wave of adopters. CISO was, was already in place when I became chair. But our post-implementation review, which is something that we do on major standards like CECL, was was starting. And, and that was something that I was able to jump in and, and, and do a lot of outreach with, with investors, with, with preparers to understand what was working and what could be improved. And, and I will tell you that through that process, there were three things that I heard. The first was that, that CECL's interaction with troubled debt restructurings for lenders was an area, it was a problematic area. It was effectively requiring a very similar calculation twice. And why would you do that if, if, if CECL, by its nature, is expected losses? Uh, the second thing that we heard was when you acquire, when, when a, one financial institution acquires another, because you record acquired loans at fair value, that fair value already incorporates collectability. So why would you do a separate CISO allowance on those entities since it's already incorporated in fair value? And the third thing that I heard, particularly for smaller financial institutions, that next wave of adopters was concerns about cost and complexity. 
So on the first issue, troubled debt restructurings, we've already passed a standard that effectively eliminates troubled debt restructuring accounting for entities that have adopted, for lenders who've adopted CECL. They have to do more disclosures, but what we also heard was, while that goes away, it is important for investors and other allocators of capital to understand what changes to loans are occurring. And and troubled debt restructurings, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, those are modifications that are kind of unusual, like not just a standard quick little change to a modification, but like if your borrower is really in trouble and they need something significant, like a huge interest rate reduction or a principal pay down or something like that, that becomes a loan that gets labeled as a troubled debt restructuring under the old accounting. And then finally, I'll go to cost and complexity. And and the board, when, when they developed CECL, intended it to be scalable. And what I heard during my outreach, particularly with the community banks and the credit unions, was one of their big challenges was access, access to data. Uh, we spent a lot of time, we reached out to the Fed. Uh, Governor Bowman, I, I think, played a huge role in this. The Fed actually developed a, a data set and a simplified approach um, of applying CECL for smaller community banks. So, you know, I think that is following up on the, the board's original intention that this should be scalable. And, and I think that the regulators, because they have a key role there for these, these types of financial institutions, them playing a role in this was key. That was Rich Jones, chairman of the Financial Accounting Standards Board, speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Nicola White. And that's it for today's Talk of Tax. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor, and our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.